take the risk, step out of your comfort zone. I know that sounds like a cliche. Take the adventure. It doesn't have to be forever. Make it six months, a year, but take the adventure. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. This is David Wright, host of Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business. And I am here this morning with Dr. Karen Marhefka. Thank you. Deputy CIO of uh, RWJ Barnabas. So Karen, it's such a pleasure to have you here this morning. And I figured we'd start with just a 60 to 90 second question about yourself and your current role. Okay. It's great to be here, David. Thank you for inviting me this morning. My current role, let's start there. Um, I'm the, as you said, the Deputy Chief Information Officer for Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health System. My focus is specifically on the medical group, which is growing every day. It's a huge part of the RWJBH system. And I came aboard about two years ago to the day into this role. What was so interesting about it is that there was someone in this role as the vice president of IT, but it was, they were, the system was unsure of what they needed from a, from an IT, from a technical leader, a person who was going to partner with operations in a part of the health system that was still coming together. It was not as cohesive as part of the organization as the acute care systems have been. It was basically, for me, a gift. Here, Karen, let's do some good stuff here and uh, mold this into the technical structural organization that we need it to be. So that's pure fun for me. And so far, two years in, it's hard work, but it's probably the best job I've ever had. That's so great to hear. I appreciate that. And, you know, really working to understand the operations and the business context to ensure that that IT vision and mission really embody that is so crucial. And I've seen you kind of be a, a proponent of that. So where did you start out? How did you get to RWJ Barnabas? What was life before that? So life before that, my husband and I raised our family in Massachusetts, in central Massachusetts. 
And for a good portion of that time there, I worked at UMass, University of Massachusetts, UMass Memorial in Worcester, Massachusetts. My role there, I was there for 23 years. I started as an IT analyst and then worked my way through the organization, mostly in operations roles. I would go put one foot into the IT side of things when things like meaningful use rolled around, DRGs, things where technology just has to lend a hand into into making things what they need to be and keeping them moving forward. So um, I just, I always did that kind of two-step with getting very interested in the technical side of things, but at the same time, continuing to grow with the organization in various leadership roles, but in operations. So on or about 2009, I was approached by the then chief information officer who asked me if I wanted to be the face of a massive electronic health record system transition for all of UMass Memorial, multiple acute care hospitals, a very large and thriving medical group. I said, absolutely, absolutely. And the reason why they asked me to do that was essentially, you know, what is intriguing about how my career has progressed. They wanted someone who understood operations, how things worked, how things really worked, so that we could take that knowledge and make sure that the IT, that the technology, but most importantly, how we built the electronic health record systems married up to how our operations was working. So I had an opportunity, again, it was a, it was a gift given to me to be very creative, work some magic and bring that operations and entities together. It has served me, this is going to sound like a bit of a selfish statement, but it served me well because it's such a unique combination of skill sets that a little bit, little bit of demand there for that, the marriage of those two sides. So I was able to do some really, really wonderful things at UMass. And at the end of my 23 years there, I had an opportunity. Our children were grown out of the house. My husband and I decided to, you know, sort of spread our wings and try something new. So we both went into consulting. So I was able to continue that marriage of operations and technology, those skill sets from a consulting pulpit, if you will. And uh, it took me all over the country, worked a lot in Dallas, Texas with Tenet Healthcare, did that for about 10 years before I said, you know what? I miss working for an organization, for an integrated delivery network. And um, lo and behold, this opportunity with RWJBH opened up. I dove right in. So that's sort of the progression of how things of how things happened. Yeah, I've, I've found that the CIOs that I know that have that kind of dual threat background, having sat on the other side of the table and done those types of engagements multiple times, it's just invaluable experience, and it definitely shows. So very cool. So now you're at RWJ Barnabas Health. What's your vision for the organization? So we are in the midst of a massive electronic health record system transition. RWJBH is coming from, I think, I cannot be quoted on this, but somewhere between 10, 15, or 20 disparate EHR systems. Just by sheer fact that this healthcare organization, as many healthcare organizations across the country, it's an acquired game. And when you acquire a hospital, when you acquire a medical group, with that comes their heritage or their legacy EHR. 
So make a decision that you either change it at that moment to something you feel is more stable because it's already been in the organization, or you make do and build a lot of interfaces and get creative with workflows. So that's what we have done for a long time, knowing that at some point we were going to have to make a change where we would be one system, one chart for one patient. And we chose Epic. So we are in well into year two, almost entering year three, if you count all of the planning that has happened before our first go live. We're well into a six wave. We're at wave three. That's coming up a phasing of go lives. We did not do Big Bang just for the sheer size of our organization, over 11 acute care hospitals, over 350 practices. So we're going in waves and we've organized those waves. I'll say this as simply as I can. If you've got 10 practices that are located geographically close to an acute care hospital, that's where they send most of their patients and that interaction has already been established. We tried very much for that to be a guideline for who gets to go in in what wave. That's worked pretty well so far. We have a lot of the medical group that's already live. We're starting to do our acute care hospitals now in these waves that we're working with now. And so we're we're way out into 2024 until we're going to be finished. But um, this is a journey that this organization knew that at some point it was going to have to take. We are in full swing. again. I'm so lucky to be a part of this big journey. Largest health system in the state of New Jersey, and most of the large health systems in the state of New Jersey are already on Epic. So just take outside of RWJBH patients, New Jersey, New Jerseyites, uh, New Jerseyans. I don't live in the state of New Jersey, so I'm not sure what the right term is. But how lucky for the state of New Jersey! that connectivity, that sharing of your information when you want it to be shared, it's just going to be great, no matter what health system you're a part of. I mean, it's been amazing to see. And I love how you kind of circle back to the patient experience because that's really what it's all about, right? Creating better outcomes for patients, creating a more compassionate and just a better experience overall. So I love that. I love what you had said about understanding the operational and clinical workflows, because I've found that for so long in healthcare, IT was a bit siloed and there would be application rollouts and things of that nature. But being able to to take advantage now of automation and of key integrations, it's built in the cloud and you need to, you know, you're going to disrupt things for a little bit and it's going to be uncomfortable. But it's been amazing to, to see RWJ on this journey. And the technology has gotten very slick, requiring very, very smart people, a different kind of smart to help us do this. It's funny, there was a, a phrase someone used a couple of years ago when innovation obviously was the big buzzword in healthcare IT. Everybody has to be an innovator. Everything has to have an innovation label on it. You have to have a, you know, a division of innovation, innovation, innovation. What comes along with that, if you're true, if your organization really, really wants to acknowledge the fact that innovation breeds having a smoother experience for your patient, you need a different kind of skill set for that. So I try and balance making sure we have that skill set in place 
but also that it's recognized that the customer, the person on the other end of that, that their experience is relatively simple. Simple is not disgraceful. And I'll use one example of where these are the types of things that I point out at least a hundred times a day. We have a very, very large practice. They're just having a hard time with, I am using my workstation to print something. But when I leave my workstation to go find it, because we don't have printers in exam rooms, but so to go find it, I have no idea where it's printing to. And I don't have a choice for where I'm supposed to because we're very standard. I don't have a choice to where something is printed. It never seems to print in this, you know, when I do find it, it doesn't ever seem to print there again. So what's going on? What we found was that there was just confusion on the part of the customer. There's just confusion about where things are going. Put a label on the workstation to say anything printed from this workstation is going to print at what so-and-so and so-and-so printer. So there was discussion about doing that. Of course, you have to have a meeting. You have to have a project plan <laughs> for a label and a marker. Who's going to do it? When they're going to do it? And it's like, no, no, you know, don't make it so hard. But they did make it hard. Let's have these things typed out so they're, you know, very legible. But the name of the printer that they were going to put the label to say where it was printing was something like, I'm making this up, but NKB74605 dot dot, you know, pound, pound, pound. <laughs> no, you missed the point. <laughs> and again, it's that reminder every day that everything we do, even something like that, naming a printer and saying where something is going to print, name it, I don't know, pilot, you know, just make something that there can be a memory association for that customer as to where something's going to go. So that's kind of a silly example, but it's real that it's real, but that happens all day long. And again, it goes back to I'll circle back to the skill set it takes to make sure that our technology is working in a way that makes it easier for the customer to do things, but you still have to employ some real human tactics that are very, very simple to make sure that that experience is exactly what we intended to be. It really starts with understanding those challenges at a an intimate level, understanding the the impact they have and empirically where are we at today? What are, what do the KPIs look like? And then being able to measure measure success and it starts with people, process, methodology prior to technology even being involved. You know, we see that when we look at, you know, healthcare contact center all the time. So many of the things that need to be done to to increase revenue and to reduce attrition. It starts with, you know, sitting with these folks and inspiring them, creating comprehensive training programs, logically mapping out what do those patient workflows look like, and then bringing in technology to, to facilitate it. Exactly. Instead of the other way around. Very cool. So what do you think is the future uh, of healthcare? You know, I know that's a, a broad question, but how would you answer that? So I'll take that to, let's take it to more specific to a patient's experience at a practice, at a clinic. So people tend to forget, and I'm a big proponent of the ambulatory space. That's my passion. 
but that's where patients live. They live in the ambulatory space. They don't live in the acute care space. You know, the, the acute care space is there when they need it, but every healthcare organization is focused on keeping their patients who employ their services, keeping that patient well. And in keeping that patient well, they're doing that in the ambulatory space. And when something goes wrong, trauma or needed, you know, surgeries necessary or chronic illness that requires requires an acute care setting, of course, those are going to happen. That's why we have hospitals there. But if I focused on the ambulatory space, what I see as the future of healthcare is a patient who, when they're not doing a telehealth visit, but they actually need to be front and center with their provider in person, we call that laying the hands on the patient when that's required and the patient is there. That patient should be able to do something I've called, and I've phrased this 25 years ago at UMass. They should have an experience called car to clinic. They park their car, they walk in, and the only thing that happens in that exchange with of I'm here, which can also be handled electronically, think of open table and those types of apps that announces the fact that you've arrived. The only thing that should happen is that you go right into your exam room. There should be no collection of a copay, no registration, no eligibility check on your insurance, none, 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 none of that. All of that, all of that pre-work, as well as everything post the visit, which is more about getting the bill out the door, all of that should be not part of that physical location where the patient and the work that goes into that. That's where contact centers come into play. And I'm talking about very robust contact centers where not only are they responding to a call, but while the patient is on that call, we can make your appointment. We can register you right now. We can do your eligibility checking. Oh, you need an authorization? Let's put that through if, we have, if we're close enough to, to our visit date. All of that can happen telephonically outside of the practice. That's the experience I want to have. That's the experience I want my husband, my family, my children to have, my grandchildren to have, is that when they go into that doctor's office, that they, hello, I'm here. Here's the exam room. And that's it. And I hesitate by saying that that's my vision of the future because there are organizations who are doing that now and really, really successfully. So that's what personally, passionately, that's what I am bringing to this organization slowly, but with the technology that we have, with the planning that we're doing for the contact centers, for the telecommunications infrastructure, that's what's behind my passion for that. No, I love that. In that ambulatory space, there is a ton of competition right now. Companies that were built on that kind of cloud-first mentality and that are employing different delivery modes of care. And really, one of the things we say in, in creating this optimized patient experience is it needs to be radically convenient, which you mentioned, and personalized, right? People need to really feel like the healthcare provider is going that extra mile to understand who they are. And you know, for us, one of the key ways of doing that between, you mentioned contact center, is forming that integration with the EHR. In regard to pre-registration, call comes in, their data already populates. So if they're an existing patient, it can happen in a, in a snap. You could start employing self-service options and AI to 
And, you know, listen, I mean, with artificial intelligence and bots, most people would defer to wanting to talk to a live person. But that's shifting because if you're really able to take advantage of all technology has to offer today, you can create that experience where it's so convenient and the bot knows who the person is that they don't even feel the difference. It's just, it's so convenient that they're like, well, I actually prefer that. We saw that shift during COVID, largely outside of healthcare with organizations that had already kind of been making strides in that direction. But like you said, we're seeing healthcare organizations do it successfully. And they're doing it knowing that we live in a generation where we're going to have to provide method for, I've whittled it down to two sets of humans. The set who is ready and capable of everything being, you know, drive the artificial intelligence to a point where I'm just thinking what I want and it's happening. Everything automated, everything electronic. I don't have to interact with anybody except for when I actually see my provider versus the other set of humans who absolutely it's essential we provide that human interaction and more of a traditional experience. It's just the world we live in right now. And it's going to be a while before where I think we're maybe not quite even, but we're getting there. And then it's just eventually going to, you know, just time goes on, things get easier, more intuitive. I have an 88-year-old father and an 85-year-old, well, of course, given my job, they are both portal users. And it's a sitcom every once in a while to sit with them and make sure that, you know, they're making their appointments and they're looking at their test results. And then every once in a while, I'll get from my mother, you know, well, I don't want to know what my cholesterol level is. My doctor hasn't called me to tell you. I'm not supposed to know that. That's like a confessional. So as the generations do their natural shifting, healthcare organizations have to keep a foot here and a foot there in order to be that satisfier for what a patient expects. That's tricky. It's tricky because you don't want to be lazy about becoming more innovative. You can't fear it. It's risky. You can't get lazy about it just because it's, you know, it's a little bit easier not to make some aggressive, aggressive changes. So I work for an organization who's, who's, I think, right in the right place with the amount of risk versus what is the right thing to do with the population of patients that they serve. And so we're doing pretty good. Other organizations are way more riskier and other organizations are way less riskier. I think RWJBH is right where it should be. I would tend to agree. You know, the advantage of the next-gen contact center for even taking live calls is the fact that when you build that integration, you could still make that experience radically convenient and, and personalized in that, let's say, Karen, you're calling in and I'm the agent. When your number hits... Well, A, I can verify who you are prior to you reaching an agent by creating that automation. And nobody minds that, right? It's a simple question. And then if you want to go to a, a live representative, when I pick up, I know that you're Karen Marhefka. You've been verified. I know that you had a surgery two weeks ago, and I know that you're due for a follow-up with your primary care physician next week. And I can say, hi, Karen, this is David here. How are you feeling? When that agent doesn't have to think about figuring it out, 
and they can just concentrate on being compassionate, that's the next gen. That's everything. That's truly, truly everything. I live, as you know, I live in the state of Florida and I traveled to New Jersey, which will become now that we're beyond the worst of COVID, will become a little bit more frequent. But here in the state of Florida, I, my healthcare organization that my husband and I use is, it's interesting. They are an extremely compassionate organization just in their culture and in how every single person that we've interacted with there, you can tell it's built into their culture. Their technology that supports everything I just talked about is 10 years behind. And they're going to make the big change. You know, they're already in the planning stages and they're coming along, but their technology, and we notice it because we're in the business. So we're looking for it. We're not critical of it, but we're aware of it. Their technology is at least 10 years in the past. And, but the way they portray themselves or the way they handle their patients with that kind of compassion that you just described is really, is really amazing. When you said that, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what are they going to be when they have the technology, you know, there and in place? That's really going to be what a stellar organization. And we're so lucky that we're connected with that here in Florida, especially coming from Massachusetts, where some of the best healthcare in the world is there. But I'm glad you said that because that kind of clicked with me with old technology, but great culture, the best technology married to a great culture. That's nirvana for a patient. hundred percent. And it's hard to teach that culture. It's hard to lead that level of organizational change management, especially with an organization, you know, health systems that have grown by a myriad of different acquisitions and they all have a, their own cultures and, you know, even in the contact center particularly. And that's compounded by the fact that, you know, these folks are usually underwater. They're getting hammered. So to try to train up and really help people with that when they're busy, kind of just keeping the lights on is tough. It's very tough, especially now, given that I know for our organization, because of COVID, there's just been a a shift in the vacancy rate and our resources. And we're coming back happily, proudly, we're coming back. But that's the staff over the last two years has been so you know, just tasked with just an enormous amount of responsibility and stress where they've just had to get all hands on deck. So technology, as we're going through our Epic implementation and that shift, I think there was a, an embedded expectation that right on day one of Go Live, that their lives were going to be significantly easier. And it's a great system. We're doing really well, but change, no matter what that change is, it just takes time. It takes adjustment. And at the same time, while we're trying to make sure that everyone knows how important it is to be empathetic, especially when your job is is patient-facing or when you're talking to them through telecommunications, the empathy, the understanding, honesty, transparency, all that, all that stuff, Epic is not going to replace any of that ever. It's just going to, like you said, it's just going to enable more time to be able to, to do that versus, you know, dealing with the other stuff. But uh, there was an expectation that on day one, my life is going to be so much better and <laughs> we're getting there. The more confidence you can instill in those folks, the more knowledge management resources and 
you know, all of that, the more that they can kind of pivot and have fun with it. You know, we found that over the last five to seven years, it was all, you know, customer experience, consumer experience, patient experience. But one of the trends we've seen over the last couple of years and during COVID has been the agent experience because attrition rates are so high and because burnout is real and because there's a, a talent shortage, it's important that health systems and other healthcare organizations are investing in these people and really trying to lift them up because even if you're just being selfish and self-seeking, it's, there's going to be a huge financial burden on the organization if you don't figure that out. Exactly. Completely agree. What's a, a blog or a book, one of your favorite literary pieces right now? Oh, boy. I was in school for five years getting my doctorate, and I made a bit of a vow to myself that when I finished that journey, which I have, thankfully, with a lot of help and support, that my reading materials off the clock be anything but healthcare related, to tell you the truth. I will typically check the New York Times bestseller list. I'm an avid reader, fiction mostly. But lately, I've been picking up a biography or two and not purposeful of any person or, or genre or, you know, or decade or, any, or anything like that. But just, hmm, that looks, you know, that looks pretty interesting. You know, sports figures or historical figures from the late 1800s, early 1900s, that whole Gilded Age thing, that's really got my attention for some reason. Just really stepping outside of my, oh gosh, 18-hour day into the rest of what I have to completely step away from what I'm doing. But even blogs, even things that I listen to, you know, when I'm exercising or taking a long walk, I tend towards that biography, that, that documentary form of entertainment. What have others done? What are some interesting stories that you really don't know? What's the old Paul? Paul oh, you're much too young to remember this, but Paul Harvey a real radio icon where he used to, there would be something you heard about, you know, some historical person or story. And he would tell, now you want to know the rest of the story? Well, here it is. And real nuggets of uh, stuff you've never heard of that were part of the story everybody's heard of. And that was actually the name of his radio show was now for the rest of the story. Those are the kinds of things that I'm, for some reason, very, very drawn to. The stuff we think we know and we don't. People don't magically become who they are without a ton of life experiences. And some of that experience can be pretty bizarre. And that's the stuff I like. I love that. I've had a, a bizarre journey myself. And I also love that, like getting that experience from others and, and soaking up that journey. I mean, it's... It's valuable and it can be entertaining, you know, at the same time. So I was asked this question on a, a recent podcast and I got a little tripped up, but I'm going to throw it at you here. If you could go back five, 10 years, what would be the most important piece of advice you would give yourself? Wow. That one actually is pretty easy. Don't be afraid. Take the risk. Step out of your comfort zone. I know that sounds like a cliche. I... And I don't mean this in a political sense, um, but I'm very conservative in nature. I'm, I'm risk averse. Funny because the work I have to do, I, I can't be that like that. But personally, 
I'm not entrepreneurial. I'm not, oh, I'm going to quit that job and, you know, going to be a tour guide in, in Europe somewhere. I would love to be a tour guide in Europe somewhere. <laughs> I really would. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. But do I have the guts to do that? Because there's so much that I would have to change about the course of my life to be able to do that. 10 years ago, I mean, I'm the luckiest person on earth and I'm exactly where I want to be personally and professionally. So I'm very, very lucky. But if I had the opportunity, do you ever watch a show called uh, House Hunters or House Hunters International on, on HGTV? So their House Hunters International is, you know, folks have decided that they needed to live abroad and let's look for a house in some other part of the world than just looking for a house in the U.S. It fascinates me because these are people who are like, yeah, we decided to do something completely different. So we sold everything we own and we're going to go live in Venezuela. And, and I look, I'm fascinated by the show and it's like, I should have done that. We had really adventurous kids and they would have loved an experience to live abroad for a year, you know, or done something like that. I would tell myself 10 years ago, take the adventure. It doesn't have to be forever. Make it six months, a year, but take the adventure. No, that's great. And yeah, I mean, fear for me, fear is real. And when I'm going into tricky situations, of course, I'm afraid. Of course, emotion is coming up. And for me, the courage to push through that and to leverage a, a network of folks that support me and, and just to, to walk through that it is... It's hard, but that's, that's what it's all about for me. I mean, that's like every week of my life. So, and trying to pay it forward, right? Trying to be of service to others who are maybe just a, a rung down from you and, and helping lift people up. Exactly. That gives me uh, a lot of joy. A lot of folks have asked me, what was it? Why did you go for this doctoral journey late in your career? And it's not that I wanted to get another degree, you know, for the big job or actually even to enhance the work I was doing. Of course it has, there's no doubt about that. No, the whole reason behind getting my doctorate was to teach, you know, at some point, you know, when retirement is ready for me and I'm ready for retirement, I'm diving right in, hopefully Rutgers or UMass or, you know, one of these beautiful organizations that I've had an opportunity to work for who have medical schools and thriving medical schools at that, who would like to add into their curriculum a little bit of, of what I can teach. Basically, technology not for a technology class, but how a provider should look at technology to support patient care. What's out there? What's innovative? Understanding and acknowledging that it's really, really tough to move from paper to phone or tablet or you know whatever it is. But that's why I got that doctorate. And that is a pay it forward aspect of how I can do that. So hopefully I'm doing a little bit of it now, but more guest lecture kind of thing rather than obviously I don't have, just don't have the time to be part of a full faculty, full curriculum, but oh, it's out there and it's looming. And uh, someday I'm going to live that dream, but it's totally about paying it forward. So cool. Karen, I think that's all the time we have for this morning, but I appreciate you so much. It's, it's amazing to know you. I really appreciate you being on this morning. Thank you. Thanks for giving me a chance to just tell a good story. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right, we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.